This episode of the Can't Make This Up History Podcast is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. New supporters can vote on what books and guests should be featured in upcoming episodes. Become a patron at patreon.com forward slash cmtu history. Thank you for downloading this episode of the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Kevin, and I want to start off today's show with a couple of announcements. The show's website now has a new web address. You can now find the show notes for each episode and acknowledgments for the show's supporters at www.cmtuhistory.com. And I would also like to introduce a new feature on the website. There is now a CMTU History Bookstore, an easy one-stop resource for all the books we've discussed on the podcast so far. Just in the last couple of days, I know people have bought a couple of books, uh, Damnation Island by Stacey Horn and Tesla, Inventor of the Modern by Richard Munson. So it's really cool to see this being used as a resource for people to, to dive into some really great history. And just in the interest of full disclosure with you guys, the podcast is an Amazon affiliate, so any purchases made through the links on the website benefit the show. The podcast gets like a 4 or 5% commission. It's not a lot, but it helps keep the lights on. Anyway, let's get into today's topic. Do you remember when President Obama nominated Merrick Garland to replace the late Antonin Scalia as a justice on the Supreme Court in 2016, only to have that nomination completely shut down by Senate Republicans? Or remember when President Trump nominated Brett Kavanaugh to the court, resulting in Kavanaugh's sexual history being played out before the national media? My guest today writes about the Supreme Court for a living and has quite thoughtfully asked if the nomination process has always been this brutal. Mark Bobelian is the author of Battle for the Marble Palace, Abe Fortas, Earl Warren, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, and the Forging of the Modern Supreme Court, in which he identifies the 1968 nomination of Abe Fortas to become Chief Justice of the Supreme Court as the turning point when what had been a mundane procedural vote became a bitter partisan feud. Michael is himself a lawyer as well as a graduate of the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. He covers the Supreme Court and other legal subjects for Forbes.com and has contributed to numerous publications including Reuters, the LA Times, and NPR. Michael joined me for a fascinating Skype interview about the Fortis nomination in 1968 and what that means for us living today. Now on to the show. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast Bringing you strange but true things from the past It's not the average history that you learned in school we're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools and stories that are just too crazy to believe the stranger than fiction and super unique michael bobelian welcome to the podcast thank you for having me glad to have you um you have written a very interesting book on the U.S. Supreme Court that I'm very excited to talk about uh, called The Battle for the Marble Pat, uh, Abe Fortas, Earl Warren, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, and the Forging of the Modern Supreme Court. And so I wanted you to start by telling us how you got into this topic and a little bit about your background before this. Sure. That's, that's a great question, origin question there. Um, well, I'm a, I'm a lawyer and I'm a writer, and I've been writing about the law for – and growing up as well as in law school, the conventional wisdom uh, was that the Robert Bork nomination in 1987 was sort of the turning point in the heated confirmation fights you've seen uh, in the last uh, few decades. 
And that's that's sort of the widely accepted conventional wisdom, and that's what I thought as well. But a few years ago, I was looking through a list of Supreme Court nominees dating back all the way to the founding of the country, to the Washington administration, if you will. And I saw that most most nominees were confirmed very quickly, uh, within days or weeks, sometimes within a single day. And I looked further and I saw that uh, hearings, they didn't have uh, confirmation hearings until well into the 20th century, and they were often brief. Uh, one of them was five minutes long. Um, and that they would often get uh, confirmed without even a roll call vote, where the Senate goes through each senator and asks for his or her formal vote. They would just say in unison, all in favor say yay, all in all against say nay. And I said, wait a minute, how could it have been such a cavalier, almost nonchalant process? And I saw that everything kind of changed starting in 1968 with the nomination of uh, Justice Abe Fortas to become Chief Justice. And I saw that um, he went through far more agonizing and long uh, confirmation fight. And the people right after him who were nominated uh, went through a similar process. And the success rate of nominees, there were only one nominee was rejected between 1894 to 1967. But then you have a handful of rejections uh, uh, starting in 1968, and we've kind of lived with that ever since. So that just seeing that chart and then looking into it a little bit more, I came to realize that, you know what? This confirmation fight in 1968 kind of set the, forged the template of modern judicial politics. And as I looked into it more, it confirmed that initial hunch that something dramatic happened, something groundbreaking and, and um, something that changed the course of history took place in that year. And my research basically reaffirmed that. Um, and, that's, and that's how I got into the topic. Well, this is a, this is a great example of, you know, looking at the world around you, you know, we've recently had the, the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation and before that Mary Garland and uh, Neil Gorsuch and, and asking, have we always done this? Um, and it's a great example of finding a really good research question and finding a really interesting story behind it. Um, so your book is um, brand new, uh, just came out um, this month, and it talks about the Supreme Court. Supreme Court, I feel, is kind of the overlooked branch, branch of government. Um, right. Not a lot of people know about it. So can you start by giving us a bit of a civics lesson? Um, what, what's the role of the Supreme Court in our government? And what's the role of the chief justice on, uh, in the court itself? Right. Court is the highest judicial body, and it uh, sits atop the federal judiciary. There are hundreds of district courts and then um, about a dozen federal appellate courts that handle the, the appeals from the district courts. And then there's one Supreme Court with nine justices, and they handle all the appeals that come through um, the federal court system. Uh, and those appeals might deal with how to interpret a law. When Congress passed a law, let's say, 50 years ago. What did it mean in a specific provision? And uh, But the more controversial cases, the ones that you often hear about in the news, usually involved interpretations of the Constitution, whether an act of Congress or the act of a president or a regulatory agency or the actions of a, of a state government whether they violate the Constitution or not. And 
Supreme Court is the final arbiter of those constitutional questions. So Congress might pass a law, the Affordable Care Act, uh, the Obamacare, and the Supreme Court ultimately becomes the, the body that determines did that act violate the Constitution or not. And that's, that's what gives it immense power. And that's actually unusual in, uh, in the world. Most uh, Supreme Courts in other countries are not given this kind of uh, authority, uh, even in democracies. So it's kind of a bit of a, the United States is a bit of an outlier there in terms of how much power granted to the Supreme Court. So that's sort of the role it plays in our, um, in our government. And the Chief Justice is the, the head of the court. A lot of that means that uh, he has uh, administrative duties, you know, budgeting and, uh, and things like that over not just the Supreme Court, but the entire federal judicial system. Uh, which you know most people don't really take a, much of an interest in. In terms of the among the justices, he has kind of two prerogatives that don't give him any more formal power than the other justices, but give him some, uh, let's say, more uh, persuasiveness. And that is that um, uh, he gets to address, have their um, closed door meetings, which are kept uh, private and confidential. And he can kind of set the tone for what he thinks about a case. And he also gets to determine who writes an opinion for the court. So uh, each of the nine justices uh, write opinions. But the majority opinion, if the chief justice is in the majority, he determines who will write the majority opinion. If he's in the minority, he determines who will write the dissenting opinion. And a lot of times it's a very nuanced thing. Picking the right justice to write the opinion can make or break a case uh, because justices, even if they voted one way or the other, sometimes do switch votes based on how the opinions are drafted. So, so his vote counts the same as all the other eight justices, but those two kind of prerogatives of being the chief justice gives him a little bit more, like I said, a little bit more persuasiveness perhaps. And obviously it also depends on who is the chief justice at a specific time and how well they use their authority and their standing to lead the court, and some have done it much better than others. Yeah, there's um, a lot of subtlety on the court that, that I picked up uh, in reading your book uh, that I didn't appreciate before. Um, what's the connection between Congress and the court? What's the nature of this confirmation process? Right. Well, uh, under the Constitution, the president nominates a person court, and the Senate uh, has the right to affirm or reject that nominee, and it's by a, a majority vote. Uh, it's not a it's not a two thirds requirement or anything like that. And historically, outside of a few episodes here and there, the Senate largely rubber stamped the, no, uh, the nominees, especially through most of the 20th century. And so the Senate's role was kind of seen as like, well, as long as the person isn't a completely outlandish pick. Um, it kind of went along with whoever the president uh, nominated. And so they were very deferential to the president's uh, wishes at, in that case. That changed in 1968, and that's what a lot of my book is about, is that the Senate no longer uh, kind of uh, uh, was no longer as deferential and was unwilling to rubber stamp nominee they perceived as someone who was either uh, too ideologically driven in one direction or who was not 
they didn't have the qualifications that they wanted or had something else about them that upset uh, a large group of senators. So uh, that's the historical basis. As I said, the Senate has the right to uh, confirm uh, a, a nominee, but they largely defer to the president until about the last 50 years or so. Okay, so so now that we've established the mechanics of, of how this works, and, 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 and you and the audience and, and myself are all on the same page, um, your story talks about 1968, but but to get there, we got to back up 15 years. Uh, what can you tell us about Earl Warren, um, his background before coming to the Supreme Court, and um, his connection with future President Nixon? That'll come into play later as well. Yes, uh, Earl, Earl Warren is a fascinating character and, and the kind of politician that no longer exists. He was a California Republican, uh, but he was a progressive Republican, and that that progressivism doesn't fall neatly um, into modern day labels. So, in some things, he was what we would call a conservative, and other things, he was what we would call a liberal. And uh, for instance, increased uh, um, pension benefits, which is you know something more of a, a liberal um, point of view. But he was, uh, and he also wanted universal health care in California. But in many ways, he was for states' rights, uh, and he was a tough prosecutor. So in some ways, he was also conservative. Uh, he was the district attorney of Alameda County in the in the Bay Area for a long time, and then the attorney general of California, and became the, a three-term governor of California. And he was incredibly popular. He was the first three-term governor of the state, one re-election. Uh, he got over 90% of the vote, which is astounding that someone could get uh, that high of a percentage on, in, you know, in a major election. We're not talking like a obscure rural county seat where you know there might be just uh, one one person running. And he was both the Republican and Democratic nominee uh, candidate, excuse me, uh, that year, and that shows you how how much bipartisan support he had. Oh wow, that's that's unheard of today. Yes, that's exactly unheard of. So you have this guy who's, and, and his chief uh, advisor was a Democrat, and as I said, he was a Republican. So you have this guy who's bipartisan, progressive, but still uh, a Republican. And he was a national figure. He was Thomas Dewey's uh, running mate in the 1948 uh, presidential election. So he was this national figure by the late 40s, early 50s. Um, at the same time, you have Richard Nixon, was a senator from California, also a Republican. So under typical circumstances, they should have been uh, allies or at least uh, political friends, right? Uh, but they weren't. Uh, Nixon was far more partisan. His style of politics was much more aggressive. Warren was much more of a person who liked to unify. Uh, so they kind of rubbed each other uh, the wrong way in terms of just their personalities and the way they campaigned. Nixon, as I said, was was uh, much more aggressive in his campaigns. His his campaign manager felt that you had to destroy your opponent, not just defeat him. Whereas Warren uh, kind of acted more like a statesman. Uh, he was a bit aloof from uh, sort of the the dirtier things that politicians have to do to uh, win office. Uh, so so that set them apart, just a personality standpoint and a stylistic standpoint. Uh, and then. Their simmering rivalry came to a boil in 1952. Uh, as I said, Earl Warren had been the term governor of California. 
And the main aspiration left for him was to become president. And it was his less, last best chance to, uh, to become the Republican candidate uh, that year. And so heading into the 52 Republican convention, I have to say that that was a time when primaries weren't yet the, uh, the way that we chose our candidates. It was still done through the old convention process where delegates picked the candidates and, you know, there was a lot of backroom dealings and the, and things like that. And so Warren goes into the 52 convention and he's kind of the third person, Eisenhower, you know, the World War II general and, uh, and uh, Robert Taft, who was a senator from Ohio. They're the front runners. Warren was hoping they would kind of cancel each other out and he'd be a compromise candidate, which was a common strategy during the during the early part of the 20th century, mid 20th century, and a strategy that had worked before for other candidates. And uh, one of the keys to his strategy was to hold on to the California delegation. It was a very large delegation at the convention. And his relationship with Nixon really fell apart when uh, Nixon was offered the vice presidency by Eisenhower's team if he managed to move the California delegation over to the general. And he tried to do that. He ultimately failed, but his very attempt really angered Warren, and he called Nixon a traitor in our delegation, and and their they, their relationship became very acrimonious after that. And both of them, you know, would throw little insults at each other behind the scenes, and and it was well known that they despised each other uh, throughout the 1950s and 60s, especially after this rift. So so that's that was their relationship heading into uh, 1968. But not forgetting about Earl Warren, uh, Dwight Eisenhower does um, select him to be a justice on the Supreme Court, uh, and he's going to become um, probably the most influential chief justice, uh, at least in the 20th century. Um, can you explain why the Warren court was so controversial uh, at its time? Sure. And, and he was definitely the most influential uh, justice of the 20th century. Um, and just to backtrack a little bit on the question, you can tell like today we almost always pick uh, justices out of the federal judiciary. So of, of the nine current justices, only uh, Elena Kagan uh, had no previous judicial experience, and she was the dean of uh, at Harvard, and she was a solicitor general. So she had a deep legal background, whereas mid-20th century, when Warren joined the court, only one out of the nine justices previous judicial experience. So it kind of shows you the backgrounds of the of the justices has changed dramatically. And that's in large part because of uh, how Warren came to the court um, and the kind of rulings that uh, the sort of the revolution that the Warren court um, um, launched uh, is, is why we pick justices differently now. Um, so the things that made the Warren court controversial, uh, made it the champion of liberals and the villain in terms of uh, uh, conservatives in America. It starts with uh, Brown v. Board, landmark ruling in 1954 uh, that ended uh, segregation in the South. Uh, and that made Warren and the Warren court uh, the, the number one villain uh, in that region. And wasn't something that the the white population in the South accepted easily. Um, in fact, accepted at all. There was a great deal of resistance to implementing Brown. If you look at the statistics, 
even a decade later, uh, I believe less than 5% of African-American students went to integrated schools. Uh, we remember the, the Little Rock uh, where there was a massive protest and, and uh, National Guard had to be sent in to stop the violence there. So there was massive resistance to Brown um, in the South, and that generated a lot of anger towards the court in that region. And that's sort of the decision we all remember historically, but there were far more. You have the criminal procedure rulings, 1960s, like Miranda, which angered a lot of Americans. And these rulings came at a time when crime rates were growing exponentially. Uh, and scholars in later generations show that there wasn't the connection between the court's rulings and rising crime rates, but people didn't think so at the time. They said, oh, look, we have these rising crime rates. We have murder going up and rapes and, and violent crimes and, and riots. And what's the court doing? Instead of protecting America and helping law enforcement, it's handcuffing it, right, with all these rules and procedures and the term technicalities became a widespread uh, term in, uh, among Americans. So you have those rulings angering a lot of Americans. The reapportionment rulings in the 1960s, where you have uh, legislative districts now had to be uh, one person, one vote. They had to be pretty much of equal size. And that angered a lot of uh, rural regions, which had been overrepresented in their state governments as well as in Congress. Um, you also have uh, obscenity rulings, where um, in the 1960s it was kind of a culture war issue of how to deal with adult materials and magazines and movies and whatnot. Uh, and the Supreme Court got caught up in that. And again, um, many Americans thought that the court was uh, protecting um, uh, the content providers, people like Hugh Hefner of Playboy magazine, uh, from censors who wanted to keep these adult materials away from their communities. Um, the court also at the same time banned prayer in public schools in the 1960s, which was a very um, uh, prevalent practice uh, throughout the United States and that dated back to colonial times. So uh, you have a lot of religious conservatives who now found uh, the Warren Court to be an enemy of their values. And, and in fact, their ban on school prayer was the Warren Court's most unpopular uh, ruling. 80% uh, of Americans wanted public schools to be able to have a, a prayer. Um, so you have all these different rulings upsetting different segments of, of Americans, uh, Americans who we now call conservatives, um, and they vilified the Warren Court endlessly, and that's what made the Warren Court so controversial, uh, is because it had all these enemies, as I said, throughout the United States. But the people who we now call liberals, and what I mean by now, what we call now, is back then liberals were in both parties and conservatives were in both parties. So ideological liberals came to embrace the Warren Court because it was accomplishing a lot of things that were um, that liberals were incapable of enacting through the political process. So. You have the court getting more politicized because liberals are championing and embracing the Warren Court's rulings, and conservatives are vilifying those rulings. And that's what made the Warren Court such a, such a center of a controversy uh, in the United States throughout the 50s and 60s. Okay, so the Warren Court, for a lot of people, it became very important, whether you support those, um, uh, those rulings or, or you dislike them. That's right. Um, set the scene here in, in 1968. Uh, Earl Warren is now about to retire, and uh, someone who could potentially take his place 
is a man named Abe Fortas. Um, can you tell us a little bit about who Fortas was and uh, why it was so important to President Lyndon Johnson to have him as Chief Justice? Yes, uh, Abe Fortas um, uh, came from a Jewish family, a family of immigrants in, in Tennessee, and he came from a humble upbringing, and he was a brilliant guy. Um, he graduated second in Yale Law School. He worked for various New Deal agencies, and after World War II, he founded one of the premier law firms uh, in the United States. And he was known both for his uh, uh, legal savvy he was the, the winning lawyer in a landmark case called Gideon v. Wainwright, which um, um, mandated that state governments provide uh, lawyers for indigent uh, defendants. Uh, but he was also a political operator. So if you were a company or an individual and you needed help kind of navigating your way through uh, Washington politics, Fortas was the guy uh, you went to. And and he was renowned uh, as a as a lawyer, as a brilliant lawyer. One of his colleagues called him a brain surgeon, the the person you called in when all else failed. So you have this really brilliant lawyer, and he was a liberal, but he was also very close to Johnson. Uh, he was Johnson's personal lawyer. He was Johnson's advisor, as I said, political advice, legal advice, uh, and not just on on legal matters. Johnson would ask him about who to appoint to a federal agency or how to deal with certain legislation or how to write a speech uh, or how to, uh, how to even deal with the Vietnam War. And in fact, uh, at Johnson's most critical moments of his career, he often called on Abe Fortas. Um, when he, was, uh, he took the oath of office, um, you know, minutes after uh, John Kennedy was assassinated, he called Fortas and said, stay on the line going to need your help. Uh, Fortas was the person who came up with the idea for the Warren Commission. As I said, he often either drafted or or participated in the drafting of uh, key speeches that Johnson delivered as president. So I have someone who's, uh, who's liberal, who's a Johnson's close advisor and friend, and who's a brilliant lawyer. And, and those are sort of the reasons that Johnson picked him uh, to, to take up uh, Earl Warren's spot as chief justice. Plus, uh, Johnson was also looking out for his own interests. Um, in 1968, he had, uh, under his watch, uh, the country had enacted the Great Society, bills like Medicare and Medicaid and many environmental laws and urban housing and NPR and PBS and a lot of the framework for the federal government as we know it was enacted under Johnson also enacted the 64 Civil Rights Act, the 65 Voting Rights Act, um, big civil rights legislation. And he knew, just as Obamacare was later tested in the courts and the New Deal legislation that FDR had enacted was also tested in the courts, he knew these things would ultimately get to the Supreme Court. He wanted to make sure that the Chief Justice would be someone who would preserve his legislative legacy. And who better than Abe Fortas, who I said was his close friend, and, uh, and a brilliant lawyer and someone who was liberal who believed in that legislation. So, so Johnson had sort of these twin motives, one to protect his legacy uh, after his presidency, but also to get a friend and, and close advisor to become chief justice. And that's, and that's why he eyed Abe Fortas, who was already a sitting justice, Earl Warren as the chief. He was already an associate justice. Um, what was his first confirmation experience like? 
Right. His his first confirmation experience was a breeze. He was uh, nominated by Johnson. He had about three hours of testimony, and and most of that were you know nice lobs thrown at him. If you imagine a baseball analogy, nice lobs thrown at him, which he got to hit out of the ballpark like it was batting practice. And he was confirmed within two weeks and with a voice vote. As I said, where the Senate just said yay or nay. Uh, it was a near unanimous vote. So he was he was confirmed very easily. There were no litmus tests about his ideology. Um, even though he was very close to the president, no one checked his background, it, the Department of Justice, the FBI, no investigations by the Senate, nothing of that sort, nothing in terms of the kind of scrutiny that we now uh, do for justices. None of that took place in 1965, and he was uh, confirmed, as I said, within two weeks with no hiccups or roadblocks uh, standing in his way. Relatively easy, simple process. Yes. In 1968, though, Johnson tees him up to be the next chief justice, and this confirmation process is nothing like that. Um, how does this process, how is it completely different from anything that came before? The opposition to Fortis shattered all the norms, the traditions, the customs, the precedents that governed the confirmation process up to that point. And they used, they used some tactics that we are now familiar with, which uh, I will go over. And the first thing they said was Johnson was a lame duck because he was last six months uh, his office. Uh, and just as... Right, because he said, I'm not running for re-election in 68. That's right. That's right. In, in March, he says, I'm not running for re-election. And then in late June, he nominates Abe Fortas. And just as uh, Senator Mitch McConnell, Republicans in 2016, um, said, well, why have Barack Obama replaced the late uh, Antonin Scalia? Why not let the next president do that? Since Barack Obama is in his last year in office and he's a lame duck, same argument was used against Johnson, 68. Here's the thing. Up to that point, six different presidents had nominated about 15 justices in their last months in office. And no one had ever made this argument before. This was a completely novel argument about the president's powers. And the uh, concept of a lame duck is a bit odd, right? Because under the Constitution, the president is the president until we have a new president. Um, and if certainly if we were attacked by a foreign country or something like that, six months before the president's term is up, I don't think anyone would say, well, hold on there. Don't do anything. Don't safeguard the country. Wait until the next person gets the job. So, so it was a very novel argument at the time. Um, the other thing they did was they accused Fortis of being Johnson's crony and uh, being too close to the president. And in this case, they were right, uh, because um, their relationship continued even after Fortis became an associate justice. So he would he attended cabinet meetings. He advised Johnson on the Vietnam War, on legislation. He helped write speeches. Um, and he even gave them advice on how to make arguments to the Supreme Court which probably was, you know, going over the line. But again, this is how they changed the rules just as we know it, um, because that too was a somewhat common practice between presidents and justices. Again, dating all the way back to the Washington administration, presidents had asked justices either for, to do formal tasks or to informally meet with them and give them advice. Um, FDR, for instance, was very close to William Douglas. They were poker buddies. Though he had uh, appointed Douglas to the Supreme Court and nearly picked Douglas to become his vice president years later, 
uh, Harry Truman and Chief Justice Fred Vinson. Um, Vinson used to be on Truman's cabinet. And they would meet on his uh, Truman's presidential yacht after Vinson became a chief justice. So this was a common practice, but uh, there was a tectonic shift going on, and Fortis was caught up in the middle of it. And I would say the biggest thing, the biggest novelty that we saw in 1968 was that this was the first time the Senate had implemented a filibuster to block uh, a nominee to the Supreme Court. That had never been done before, and it wasn't attempted again until 2017 when uh, Democrats in the Senate tried to filibuster. So you have all these new tactics and, and uh, strategies used to try to thwart Fortis, which had never been seen before, and they've kind of established um, a template, a precedent, for what the Senate would do in future years when faced with a nominee that they didn't, uh, that they didn't like. So can you describe the, the nature of this resistance in, in the Senate? And it, I guess really it comes down to who this resistance was in the Senate. Right. The, the nature of the resistance was that um, the Warren court's enemies had for 15 years, since Earl Warren became chief justice, they had railed against the court, right? There are countless speeches, um, condemning the court, vilifying its rulings, claiming that it uh, usurped Congress's powers, that it usurped the powers of the state governments, that it was now acting as a judicial legislature. And and whether you agree or not, the, the sentiment was very real and very negative. So you have all these uh, angry uh, speeches, as I said, this all this uh, hatred, if you will, directed at the court. You have many attempts to thwart or resist or otherwise neutralize the Warren Court. Uh, there were attempts in Congress to strip the court of its jurisdiction, and Congress has the constitutional authority to do that. There were attempts to amend the Constitution to overrule its rulings, such as the ban on school prayer or or the one-person, one-vote rulings. So all of these attempts to neutralize the Warren Court kind of fall short. Uh, one, because the judiciary and the Supreme Court in particular is shielded from the political branches, right? That's part of what we want our court to not be persuaded by political branches. And two, these these are these attempts have very high hurdles. It's very difficult to amend the Constitution. That's why it's only been done, you know, a little bit more than a couple of dozen times. So all these attempts to curb, to neutralize, to to thwart the Warren Court had failed. And by 1968, the court's enemies realized, you know what? We've been you know, pounding away at the Warren Court to no effect, the real way of controlling the control its members. And they kind of come to this realization, and it's an aha moment. And in hindsight, you say, well, you know, of course, that's obvious, but no one had really thought of it in this calculating way that saying, till 68, they say, you know what, if we're going to control the court, the way to do it is to go after its members. So for the Warren Court's enemies, that meant keep liberals off the court and put conservatives in their place. And Abe Fortas became the first battle using this strategy. Uh, the specific people involved in the Senate, you have uh, uh, Senate Democrats. As I said, uh, people like Sam Irvin of North Carolina, Richard Russell of Georgia, uh, McLennan of, of, uh, of uh, Mississippi, James Eastland of Mississippi. Um, and and they represent the, the base of the opposition. And as I said, they were very upset at the court 
because of the uh, Brown v. Board and all these civil rights rulings, but also these other rulings that were as well, like the brand, a school prayer ban and, and so on. And you also have re Republicans who are opposing Fortis because they're hoping that Richard Nixon wins the 68 presidential election and that Nixon will be able to replace Earl Warren rather than Lyndon Johnson. And there you had Strom Thurmond um, from South Carolina, who used to be a, a Democrat, but is now the Republican uh, kingmaker in the South, as well as uh, someone who's not well known today, but was very prominent at the time, was a uh, Michigan Senator Robert Griffin, also a Republican. And so between Griffin, Thurmond, uh, and the Republicans within the Senate, teaming up with the Southern Democrats, that was the base of the opposition. This is uh, ascension. Now, how far did um, you know Thurmond and, and the others uh, that you've mentioned? How far did they take this? Um, that that section of the book I thought was just just shocking. The extent to which they uh, they went to to block this nomination. That's right, and it was shocking to me too when I learned of it because I kept saying, "Is this real? Like, how could they do this? How could they?" There's no uh, way, right. Right. There's no way that they would have done it. So I already mentioned the arguments about being lame duck and uh, and the filibuster, which was never used in this way before. But one of the more um, outlandish things they did was what came to be known as the Fortis Film Festival. And as I said earlier, uh, obscenity was a big issue of the day. And the Supreme Court had a real tough time balancing the First Amendment rights of, of people like Hugh Hefner, people who were um, creating, producing, and distributing adult materials um, at a time when there was a, you know, a sexual revolution in the 1960s. And the Supreme Court tried to protect their First Amendment rights against the rights of communities who wanted to limit access to these materials or censor them outright. And ultimately, it was a, it was a balance that it wasn't able to maintain. And later on, after Warren left the court, they kind of gave up on, on trying to do so. Uh, but this put the court uh, at the center of this struggle, um, and it was a very nuanced constitutional issue, but Strom Thurmond wasn't one for nuances. So the first thing he did was he invited witnesses to come and explain that the Warren Court was responsible for this, uh, what they called smut, sanity that was proliferating throughout the country and that it led to the moral decay of the country. And he said, you know what? Why don't we show the American public and why don't we show uh, the Senate the kinds of movies that have been shielded by the Warren Court from, um, from you know, these moral crusaders who are on these censorship boards? And so uh, he asked the Senate Judiciary Committee, can we air these movies? And they said, no, 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 that's a little too much for us. Let's not do that. But he went ahead anyway. And he found a, a room in the Senate and there was no there was no theater room that he could use. Got a coin operated projector. And because there was no screen, he just projected this movie out onto a wood-paneled uh, uh, wall. And he didn't just air one movie, but over a period of a month, there were dozens of movies uh, aired throughout the Senate. And it became kind of like a running joke, like, oh, this Thursday, we're going to watch this. Why don't you come on by? And, you know, senators would go, some of their uh, aides. And the, the House then, you know, said, oh, we're jealous, we're not getting to to participate. Uh, and, and like I said, it kind of became this dark comedy uh, that was called the Fortis Film Festival. And Fortis got labeled Mr. Obscenity yeah, because he was one of the liberal justices who, you know, was uh, protecting some of these films from censors. 
Uh, and it really hurt his case uh, in front of the public. Um, public opinion was largely favorable towards Fortas when he first got nominated. After the Fortas Film Festival in August and up through mid-September, that public opinion uh, began to erode largely because of how this issue was used uh, by um, by Strom Thurmond and the and the opponents, Fortas's opponents in the Senate. So you you literally have them showing porn in in the halls of Congress. Yes, uh, but... for the first time, and as far as I know, it hasn't been done since then. I like that. I don't know for sure, but definitely <laughs> for the first time. Yes, um, but. Um... You know, that really puts um, the people who get to vote on this, it really puts them on the spot. Yes, and, and a lot of them said, you know, even they, they all admired Fortas and respected him for his uh, for his uh, legal skills. There was never a question about that. And a lot of them admired him as a justice. But they said, you know, even if I like his uh, – after this, after he's been smeared, you know, Mr. Obscenity, it's very hard to vote for him now. So – the, the, the base of the opposition was there, but now you have the people in the middle who would have otherwise supported him having a much harder time uh, casting their vote for Fortis when they would now be, you know, uh, maybe maybe they would be labeled as, as pornographers as well, as, you know, as, as, uh, as people who are also contributing to the moral decay of the country. So it became, it became the type of thing where it really hit his supporters or people who were on the fence in the Senate, it made it much harder for them to support Fortas after that episode. So what was um, Richard Nixon's take on all this? All right, so, so Nixon is running for president in 68, and to win the, the Republican nomination, he came up with what, what his advisor, uh, Harry Dent, called the Southern strategy. And he realized that if he wooed the South, he'd be able to win at the GOP convention over Ronald Reagan and Nelson Rockefeller, who were his chief opponents. And and a big part of that strategy was to vilify the Warren court. So um, so his a big part of his, his campaign, not only to win the GOP nomination, but to win the general election, was to attack the Warren court. And he did that on civil rights, and he did that on the criminal procedure rulings. He did that to some extent on the obscenity. And so these attacks on the court um, were one of the pillars of, of his candidacy. And and again, he shattered a lot of precedent in doing that. Uh, even in FDR uh, in 1937, he, he has the court packing plan. And, you know, he had certainly spoken against the Supreme Court during the New Deal. But in the 36 election, he did not campaign against the court. And in fact, when his uh, advisors and allies within the Democratic Party said, why don't we make the court a campaign issue? He declined. Uh, but Nixon in 68 um, politicizes the court in many ways during the in the presidential process by campaigning directly against it. Um, so, so you have that in the backdrop. And you have Nixon, he wanted to torpedo the Fortis nomination because he wanted to fill that slot himself. Uh, but he did it very quietly. He only spoke about it in public once, but implicitly clear that, hey, if you manage to sabotage Fortis, I'm going to pick a person that, you know, you're, the Fortis's opponents are going to like. So clear, but he did it, as I said, quietly. So in his campaign, he didn't 
urge people to oppose Fortas, but he did constantly vilify the Warren court and the liberals on the court, and that would have included Fortas for sure. All right, so if, if, if someone wants to, to see how, how this all ends uh, for Fortas and uh, his, his um, nomination to the, to the Chief Justice slot, um, you know, I highly encourage them to go, go read the book. It's a, it's a fascinating story. Um, but, but speaking more broadly, um, how, did, how did this experience in 1968 uh, affect the process of selecting Supreme Court justices um, in the 50 years since? Right. Well, it, it did a few things. It, it changed it from the perspective of the of the president. Um, uh, prior prior to Johnson, presidents were, from modern day standards, very nonchalant about the kind of people they picked for the court. And, and I'll just give you a couple of examples from Johnson's immediate predecessors. Uh, you have Harry Truman in the 50, 40s and early 50s. He got to appoint four people to the Supreme Court. President Trump has had two picks, Obama two picks, Clinton two picks, uh, George Bush two, uh, Jr. Uh, had two picks. So Truman had four, which is a lot. You'd figure he would have a huge impact on the court, but he didn't. He picked a Republican, even though he was a Democrat. And his three other picks were all kind of centrist or slightly conservative. And you wonder, well, if the Democratic Party is becoming more and more liberal in the 40s and 50s and certainly into the 60s, why would he have done that? And the thing is, he just wasn't thinking about it very much. He picked people who were his colleagues and friends. So he picked his attorney general. He picked someone else from his cabinet. He picked people who he had worked with closely in the Senate. Um, so the, the cronies, if you will, just as Fortas was claimed to be Johnson's crony. And he didn't pick people who were brilliant jurists. Um, uh, scholars have considered his picks mediocrities. So you have a president, as I said, by modern day standards, you'd say, his imprint on the court really was a failure, right? He got to pick four people and, and none of them pushed his ideological agenda or the agenda of his party. Uh, then you have Eisenhower in the, in the 50s picking Earl Warren and William Brennan who become the liberal champions of the court. And Eisenhower later admitted that those were the biggest mistakes of his presidency. And Eisenhower is a Republican. So again, you say, well, why would a Republican you know, somewhat conservative, not as conservative as today's Republicans, but somewhat conservative, pick these two liberal champions of the court. And part of the reason was they weren't vetted ideolo ideologically. People didn't think about the court in the way we do now. So, so Johnson becomes the sort of the first president to look at the justices in this very ideological way, 65 and again in 68, and Thurgood Marshall in 1967, and in part because he realizes, well, they're brilliant lawyers and they're going to have this liberal ideology, and they're going to safeguard my legislative agenda. So, so Johnson becomes the first president to think about the, the ideology of the justices the way we do now. Other presidents did think about ideology, but not in the calculating way that Johnson did. So he kind of um, the ante, if you will. He, he, he brought it to a new level. Uh, and then Nixon becomes the first president, again, Presidents had done this in the past, but to do it as much as he did, where he uses um, the court as part of his political campaign, and he nominated people that would um, maximize his electoral interests. So he ends up picking uh, three Southerners to the court, and, and he got to appoint four people to the court as well. Part of his Southern strategy, he wanted to woo the South 
while he became president for his 1972 reelection, and it worked because he swept the house, uh, he swept the South in in 72. So fast forward to uh, say Donald Trump, right? In 2016, he actually lists a, a pre-vetted list of nominees that he would he said that he would pick from to the court, and that that was an argument that he's making to. Pick me, and I'm going to give you the kind of justices that you want. Uh, and that was that was shown to be a, a very big uh, incentive for his supporters. Picked Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, who his his base really supported. So you see Trump kind of modeling uh, the the tactics first deployed by Richard Nixon, and you see all modern presidents looking at the ideology of the justices the way Johnson did. So so from a presidential perspective. You have this very big shift starting in the 60s and, and culminating in 68 uh, and in the years thereafter with Nixon. Then from the Senate's perspective, as I said, they had largely rubber-stamped uh, nominees. And now you get a, a series of rejections and you get, you get uh, nominees going through a far more greater scrutiny, right? They're, they're ideological litmus tests. They have these background checks. Um, so the Senate is no longer rubber stamping people. They're really putting them through the through the grinder. And then you have the media and the special interests also take, playing a far bigger role uh, after this period. Uh, if you look even at when Eisenhower nominated Earl Warren, it was part of a bigger press conference that he was having. And Warren wasn't even there with him. Warren was in California. Compare that to how um, Trump picked uh, Brett Kavanaugh, right, where Kavanaugh's family is there and people give speeches. You know, there's there's the presses everywhere. And that's the only event of the day, if you will. Uh, whereas Eisenhower was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to talk about the Cold War and I'm going to talk about tax policy and budgetary issues. And by the way, I'm going to pick Earl Warren to be chief justice. It's almost like here here's my uh, agenda list and, and he's number four on the list. Uh, we would never have that today. So so the media spectacle that also formed around the nomination process uh, really mushroomed starting in that era, and and it's changed since then. It's evolved in, since then, but the revolution took place in 1968, and you know, in the in the years uh, in, of that era, and since then we've kind of had these you know s smaller mutations in the evolutionary process. So so that's that to me is the biggest takeaway: is that the tactics we deploy, the way we look at the court, the calculation the president makes, the Senate makes, the media and special interests make, changed in that era and we still live with um, resonates today and we still with, live with the aftermath of that era to this day yeah i i think you make a, a great case that that there's a huge paradigm shift that that occurs there in the in the mid and late 1960s um and you know some of the stuff you described from 50 years ago um, is shockingly similar to what we've seen over over the last couple of years Right. Um, so my last question is, uh, you know, is this the, the permanent new normal? Uh, is this what we can expect from Supreme Court nominations um, going forward? Um, you know, I, I try not to prognosticate too much because I've seen um, how uh, how many mistakes even the, the big political experts have made in recent years <laughs> in trying to predict things. So um at least for the foreseeable future, I think it's it's the new normal. Um, and the thing is to to amend the way we to change the way we we vet 
and nominate and confirm and appoint justices is very hard. You'd probably have to amend the Constitution to do it. But you can maybe change the norms, just as they were radically changed in 1968, right? Because there were no rules set in place. It was just sort of, this is how it was always done. Maybe you could change the norms by reducing the stakes involved. Uh, and if both parties said, you know what, instead of maximizing my political advantage over my opponent, and let's say picking someone to the far right or someone who's on the far left of the ideological spectrum, I'm going to pick, as a Republican, I'm going to pick someone who's on the center right, or I'm going to, as a Democrat, I'm going to pick someone who's on the center left, and have more of a conversation between the president and the Senate where you say, okay, let's pick someone that, yes, it's going to be someone who, who agrees with the president generally, but as I said, isn't on the extreme ends of the ideological spectrum. Is that likely to happen anytime soon? Probably not. But we had our chance in a way when, when uh, Antonin Scalia passed away and I thought uh, President Obama tried to do that in picking Merrick Garland because Merrick Garland was, I believe, 62 years old at the time. So he wasn't going to be someone who served, be more like someone who served maybe 15, 20 years. And he was, yes, he was left of center, but he wasn't a far left pick. And to me, that was almost like a, a compromise a selection, not someone Obama would have probably picked three years earlier, but someone he picked at the end of his presidency. And I thought if he had been, um, that that could have maybe been the new template where the two sides kind of picked justices who were more in the center than in the ideological extremes, and it didn't happen. So I don't have a hope that this will happen anytime soon, but maybe if things get, if things remain as acrimonious as they were, especially during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, maybe people will get to the point where it's a sort of a war of attrition that they say, you know what, why don't we, why don't we have a, a, a treaty, an unspoken treaty of sorts that we won't resort to these tactics, we'll agree not to pick people at the ideological extremes, so that way it won't be as unacceptable to the opposition. Do I have hopes for that anytime soon? No, I don't. So this is the way I see things going for the foreseeable future, but I am hopeful that maybe three, five, ten years down the line, some kind of understanding like that, which is more moderate and which um, where the two sides aren't, you know, going for blood each time will will become the new normal. So that that's my hope. But like I said, not not in the near future. Well, let's hope. Uh, you know, I think I think there's some wisdom in moderation. Um, all right. Well, um, this has been a, a great discussion. Uh, again, really interesting book. Uh, if someone wants to learn the rest of Fortis's story, um, where can they go to pick up a copy of the book, and where can they go to learn more about you and your work? Right. The the book is available, you know, the usual places: Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, uh, local bookstores uh, will have it. And in terms of learning more about me, uh, there's a website, Bobellion.com, uh, or if you just do a Google search with my last name, you'll. I'm very easy to find because there are there are very few people with my name. So, uh, so just looking up Bobellion or Michael Bobellion, and uh, people will find information about me, about my other work, you know, the articles I've written, and so on, as well as about the book, obviously. All right, Michael. Well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Michael Bobellian. I want to offer one clarification. Uh, I know at the end there, uh, our connection got a little spotty in places. Michael's website is 
www.michaelbobellian.com. If you're interested in Michael's book, Battle for the Marble Palace, and you're interested in picking up a copy, there is a link available to you down in the show description in your podcast app. If you want to check out a few extra resources pertaining to this topic, head over to the show notes at www.cmtuhistory.com. And then if you liked what you heard today, head on over to iTunes and give the show a review. Those five-star reviews are really helpful in getting the show noticed. And if you've already left a review, thank you so much. And of course, I'd love to talk to you on social media. You can get a hold of me on Twitter at CMTU History or on Instagram at CMTU History. A little more active on Twitter than Instagram, but I have a presence on both. Alright, that's it for today's episode. I'll meet you back here in three weeks on June 18th for another episode of the Can't Make This Up History Podcast.